Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming here to listen to me. You must be a devil for punishment, some of you. Uh, I see Professor Wang Gangwu in the audience. You have to be really audacious to even speak the word China when he is in the audience. Because what he has forgotten about China is far more than any of us will learn in our entire lives, even if we live to 150. <laughs> anyway, let me get right to it, because this is a bit longer lecture than usual. Uh, and I'll try not to read too fast, to leave enough time for questions and answers. My topic is US-China relations. Now, they set the tone for East Asia. When US-China relations are stable, the region is calm, and when they are royal, the region is uneasy, at least. And I think in time, the same will probably hold true for other regions as well. And US-China relations will certainly be a, if not the, central pillar of any new post-Cold War international order. How do you describe US-China relations? First of all, US-China relations are mature. It has been 44 years since President Nixon's visit to Beijing transformed the global strategic landscape. That is to say, considerably longer than quite a number of members of the audience, as I can see, have been alive. Secondly, US-China relations are very intricately interdependent across a very broad spectrum of domain areas. And finally, US-China relations are infused with deep strategic distrust. Well, the US and China are now groping towards a new modus vivendi with each other and the rest of East Asia. And the complexity of US-China relations, and hence the complexity of the adjustments between them that are underway, are a large part of the uncertainties of our times, which I spoke of in my first lecture. Now, ladies and gentlemen, despite what you may have heard, I am not clairvoyant. And the purpose of this lecture is not to predict the timing, the shape, or nature of the future accommodation between the US and China, or even if there will be one. I don't know. <laughs> My purpose is more modest. It is to sketch in very wide strokes some of the issues that will have to be confronted in this process. In particular, I want to deal with the roots of the strategic distrust that exists between them. Unless this is understood and dealt with, no matter how well the US and China may work together on climate change or terrorism or finance or Afghanistan or any other specific issue, I think a stable new equilibrium will be difficult, if not impossible, to achieve. And even if some sort of equilibrium is reached, it will be difficult to maintain. Now, despite or perhaps because of their long experience of each other, US-China relations, it, an experience that dates back to the 19th century, not just 1972, because of this long experience, or maybe despite this long experience, US-China relations have been rife with misunderstanding. 
The most persistent of these misunderstandings in recent times is the idea that economic reform will lead to political reform. Political reform as the West understands it in any case. And American attitudes towards China have oscillated between hopes and fears that perhaps say more about America than they do about China. In the late 19th century, many Americans believed that trade with China was, as John K. Fairbank, the great American historian of China, described it, and I quote, our manifest destiny under the invisible hand of divine providence. Wow. Now, one could conclude that the illusion has persisted ever since. At any rate, when the notion of destiny, divine or otherwise, intrudes into the analysis of international affairs, trouble usually follows. But looking back at what, looking back, looking back at US-China relations, what is surprising is that despite persistent misunderstanding, and the misunderstanding, misunderstanding usually masquerades as profound insight, there has been so little trouble. Although when trouble ensures, it has been spectacular, as during the Korean War. Today, the dominant attitude seems to be drifting towards regarding China as a threat, at least in the American media and in American political discourse. And perhaps it is. But it is important to understand the nature of the challenge accurately, and exaggerating the so-called China threat is as bad as wishful thinking. So let me, state, let me state my bottom line up front. Competition and rivalry are intrinsic parts of relations between all major powers. As China gains strength and confidence, it is bound to pursue its interests more assertively and, inquire, and acquire the instruments to do so. Former President Hu Jintao said as much in 2009 when he announced that China should pursue four strengths, one of which was greater influence in international politics. Since then, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, has assumed a higher profile in China's external relations particularly in East Asia, but also as far afield as the Horn of Africa. Military modernizations was one of the four modernizations announced as early as 1978, and we should not profess shock or surprise that China has now begun to acquire the military capability befitting a major power. Now, we may consider China's military modernization as in our interests, or we may consider it as against our interests, but China acquiring a modern military is not in itself unusual. And competition is not necessarily conflict. The important question is what China makes of its growing military strength. This is not a question that should lend itself to facile answers. So let me clear away some of the theoretical debris that has accumulated around it. In my first lecture, I described these theories as mental frameworks that some cling to in order to comfort themselves with a false familiarity in a situation that is, in fact, intrinsically unfamiliar and uncertain. And so clearing the debris will go some way to defining realistic parameters within which the US and China must work to seek a new accommodation. 
In my first lecture, I described U.S.-China relations as defying simple characterization. That's true, but we can at least say what the relationship is not. It is certainly not a clash of civilizations. For the last 200 years or so, the fundamental challenge confronting the non-Western world is how to adapt to a Western-defined modernity. I think the very concept of the modern is Western. And all Western, all non-Western countries have, in different degrees, had to change themselves. But only a handful of countries, almost all in East Asia, beginning with Meiji, Japan, have successfully met the challenge. China is the most important example. Communism is a Western ideology. The Chinese Communist Party is the latest and most successful iteration of a series of political experiments in search of wealth and power to deal with Western preditations that began in the late Qing Dynasty and which continue to this day. Those East Asian countries that have most successfully adapted to the Western definition of modernity, China included, have in a sense achieved the ambition of Fukuzawa Yukichi, the Meiji era reformer of as he put it, leaving Asia and joining the West. This does not mean we have all somehow become or will become good Westerners. What does that mean anyway? By changing itself, China is changing the very concept of the political West, which has now been compelled to adapt its definition of self to new realities. The changes are most pronounced in Europe. Among other things, the price Norway had to pay for giving Liu Xiaobo the Nobel Peace Prize in 2010, the cringingly obsequious welcome that President Xi Jinping received in London last year. Lord McCartney must have been spinning in his grave. And the spectacle of European leaders trooping to Beijing, cap in hand, after the Eurozone crisis began, are visible symbols of the evolving political definition of the West. Now, the U.S. has always been a more robust and self-confident country than a tired Europe now confused and unsure about the sustainability of its own post-Cold War identity. China could not have succeeded without the U.S. China's success is in a very fundamental way an American success, albeit a not entirely comfortable one for America. And this perhaps makes adaptation more difficult for the US than Europe, and adds in no small part to the complexity of the strategic adjustments that are underway between the US and China. But whether it admits it or not, the US too has begun to adapt. And in any case, there can be no so-called clash of civilizations because we are, all now we are all now hybrids and will become even more so. There are no pure traditional civilizations anywhere. And if there is indeed a clash of civilizations, it is not with the West as represented by the US, but between a part of the Islamic world, a part of the Islamic world, and all else who have to whatever degree adapted to the Western definition of modernity which includes most Muslims. The most objective measure of adaptation is economic development. 
As its economy matures and it restructures its economy, China's growth is bound to moderate. Still, according to a recent study by the East Asian Institute of this university, even at a lower rate of growth of about 6.5%, China generates additional GDP that is equal to about 80% of Indonesia's current GDP and or a third of India's current GDP. Now, it's clear China faces many challenges in its economic reform efforts. And I do not assume that China will continue to grow uh, in a smooth upward trajectory. No country has ever done so, and why should China, why should we expect China to be an exception? But it would be imprudent to assume that China will fail. The Chinese Communist Party has a record of adaptability. It has survived many traumas that would have wrecked a less robust creature. Never mind that many of those traumas were self-inflicted. Economic growth is never a smooth trajectory. And so the inevitably irregular rhythms of economic growth ought to make us cautious about accepting simple characterizations of US-China relations as some variant or another of a contrast between a, a rising China and a declining U US. This posts a false dichotomy. China is certainly rising, but the US is not in decline. Although I admit if we confine our view of the US to the political shenanigans in its capital, we may be forgiven for coming to such a bleak conclusion. But the most significant developments in America do not necessarily take place in the political arena or in Washington, D.C. They occur in the 51 states of the United States, in American corporations, on Wall Street, and in its universities and research laboratories. And all who have underestimated American creativity and American resilience have come to regret it. The changes in the distribution of power are relative, not absolute, and as I pointed out in my first lecture, the U.S. is still preeminent in most indices of power and is likely to remain so for the foreseeable future. This is most obvious in the military realm. China has carefully studied the experience of the former Soviet Union, and while it will continue to improve its military capabilities, I do not think it is very likely to make the Soviet mistake of bankrupting itself by trying to match or surpass the US in every military system or in every theater of operations. It doesn't have to do so. And before too long, China will reach a more symmetrical military equation with the US in East Asia. This will have very important implications for the maritime disputes in the South China Sea which have become something of a proxy for the strategic adjustments underway between the US and China. Now, I'm going to deal with the South China Sea in my next lecture on ASEAN and Southeast Asia. So please don't ask me too many questions about it this evening because I am too idle to rewrite the next lecture or rethink the next lecture since I even haven't started writing it yet. <laughs> so for now, suffice to say, while military planners cannot ignore any contingency, and in a system of sovereign states, the possibility of war can never be entirely discounted, war is not a very probable scenario. In fact, I think war is highly improbable.
between the US and China. Neither the US nor China, or China is looking for trouble or spoiling for a fight. The essential priorities are both are internal and not external. Now, of course, neither is going to roll over and let the other tickle its tummy. This is not how great powers behave. Both will not relent in the pursuit of their own interests, which sometimes will be incompatible. There will be friction and there will be tensions. But the most vital of all Chinese interests is the preservation of Communist Party rule. And I think Beijing knows that win, lose or draw, and the most likely of outcome of any military conflict with the US is a loss, the Chinese Communist Party's grip on power will be placed in grave jeopardy. Now, Chinese leaders sometimes talk tough, as leaders of all great powers are wont to do. But they are not reckless. They have studied the rise of other great powers and do not want to repeat their mistakes. China has repeatedly stressed that its rise will be peaceful, and has even modified the original slogan of peaceful rise to peaceful development as a less threatening formulation. President Xi Jinping has articulated an ambitious China dream, and he has been more assertive than his predecessor. Difficult to be less assertive than his predecessor. But President Xi is a princeling who must regard Chinese Communist Party rule as his patrimony to be preserved. And I doubt he will be adventurous even as he asserts China's new status externally, while grappling with the many complicated internal challenges that confront the Chinese Communist Party internally. Now, what about America? There has been a historical tendency for America to look inwards after periods of intense external engagement. The wars that the US chose to fight, and I stress chose to fight, but lost, or at least did not win, in the Middle East after 2003 were the longest in American history, longer than the Korean and Vietnam Wars, longer even than the Second World War. President Obama was elected on the backlash. As the sole global power, the US cannot retreat into complete isolationism. Like it or not, the world will intrude. And in East Asia specifically, there has been a fundamental consistency in U.S. policy over the last 40 years or more that I expect will be maintained. But the political mood that sustained, that has sustained Donald Trump and Bernie Saunders in their very unlikely presidential campaigns is disillusionment with globalization and working and middle class insecurity about their future in an increasingly unfamiliar and uncertain world. Now, let me state this carefully. There is an impression across East Asia, shared even by some American Asia specialists of both political parties, that the second Obama administration has been less engaged and weaker than the first Obama administration. Now, this is not entirely accurate, but what matters is perception. So I think whoever next occupies the White House will therefore probably talk and even act tougher. But no American president can ignore the national mood, which is not for more wars of choice or adventure. 
Now, with both sides inclined towards prudence, I have little regard for mechanistic theories of US-China relations, such as the so-called Telucidis trap. It is true that historically, strategic adjustments of the magnitude that are underway between the US and China have either been the result of war or ended in war. But to treat someone as an enemy is to make an enemy, and the theory of the Telucidis trap does not place sufficient emphasis on human agency. Well, to recognize that there is that there may be a trap is to go a long way towards avoiding it. In any case, China will soon acquire a credible second strike capability if it does not already have one. And the prospect of mutually assured destruction has the effect of freezing the international order as it substantially did during the Cold War, where, except in the Middle East, most geopolitical changes were due to internal rather than external developments. The primary, the primary military risk in US-China relations is conflict by accident, not war by design. Now, if war between the US and China is highly improbable, is there or will there be a so-called new Cold War between the US and China? Well, there will almost certainly be tense episodes. But I do not think this is an appropriate metaphor to understand the US-China dynamic. Unlike in US-Soviet relations during the Cold War, there is no fundamentally irreconcilable ideological divide between the US and a China that has now enthusiastically embraced the market economy. During the Cold War, both the US and the Soviet Union legitimated themselves through the claim of universality for their respective systems. This made their competition a zero-sum game and the Soviet Union a revisionist power by definition, even if its actual policies were often conservative. I know, we, I know we think of the US as the custodian of the status quo, but in fact, the US is also a revisionist power. And don't take my word for it, just go and ask the Iraqis or the Afghans. Every great power is selectively and simultaneously revisionist when it suits its purposes, and a staunch upholder of the status quo when it does not. As I argued in my first lecture, while China may not be an entirely satisfied power, neither is it clearly a revisionist power. The South China Sea is an exception. But globally, China is still largely a free rider. China wants its new status acknowledged, and it was never very realistic to expect China to meekly accept the role of so-called responsible stakeholder, which is a polite way of describing a junior partner, in an order it had little say in shaping. But China has by and large worked within institutions such as the UN, the WTO, the World Bank and the IMF, and abided by their decisions. China has never claimed universality, except perhaps for a brief Maoist period, which was but a blip in the long sweep of Chinese history. Instead, China has regarded itself, China has not claimed universality, but instead China has regarded itself as the universe and demanded acknowledgement of that status. And something, too much in my view, of that attitude still lingers in Chinese policies in East Asia and complicates China's relations with the US and other countries in the region. But that's a different matter from claiming universality or being revisionist. 
I'll give you another contrast. The Soviet Union was containable because it largely contained itself by pursuing what was more or less a policy of autarky. The US and Soviet Union were linked primarily by the need to avoid mutual destruction. But China is so vital a node in the world economy and the interdependence between the US and China so deep and so wide that the US might as well try to contain itself as try to contain China. That would be an exercise in futility. The US and China both know they cannot achieve their basic national goals without working with the other, at least to some degree. Now, I don't think that either necessarily likes the situation they find themselves in, but both are pragmatic and accept it. And the very complexity of US-China relations, the enormous range of issues that the relationship now encompasses, generates, I think, a certain self-correcting dynamic. Whether you begin from the inclination to view the relationship through the distorting prism of democracy and human rights promotion, as did the first Clinton administration in 1993, or you start from the equally distorting premise of regarding China primarily as a strategic competitor, as did the neoconservatives at the beginning of the George W. Bush administration in 2001, the very effort to balance and reconcile the diversity of interests across a broad range of issues that cannot be ignored eventually, eventually drives policy to the centre. Now, lest you think that this is an overly sanguine conclusion, the key word I use is eventually. There can be a whole lot of damage both to the relationship and collaterally to third parties before the centre is reached. I am aware of the argument made by some academics based on what I consider a false historical analogy with Europe before the First World War, that interdependence did not prevent Imperial Germany and the country formerly known as Great Britain from blundering into war. The classic, the classic description of European interdependence of that period was by John Maynard Keynes, when he wrote of an inhabitant of London being able to, and I quote, order by telephone, sipping his morning tea in bed, the various products of the old earth. It's a longer quote, but I think you get what he meant. Now, is there a fundamental difference between the situation in Europe then and between the US and China now? Is there? I think so. And let me venture a hypothesis that I am too slothful to research and will leave to others more energetic and knowledgeable to prove or disprove if they are so inclined. The key difference is, I think, in Ken's use of the word products in the quote I just read to you. The classical theory of comparative advantage holds that if I have an advantage in, say, producing beef, and you have an advantage in, say, producing wine, we should each stick to producing what we have an advantage in producing, and if we exchange beef for wine, we will both live happily ever after, replete and drunk. But is this really how most, the most economically significant part of international trade is today conducted? I don't think so. I doubt that the concept of a production chain existed before the First World War, or if it existed, it was only in very rudimentary form. I suspect that the most economically significant parts of contemporary world trade 
are not in natural resources or manufactured fi finished products or final products, but in gizmos of one sort or another as part of transnational production chains by multinational corporations. And this, I think, raises the cost of disrupting interdependence to qualitatively new levels and creates a kind of economic, mutually assured, if not exactly destruction, mutually assured impoverishment. Now, I don't claim that interdependence, whether of this new type or the common or garden variety, makes war between the US and China impossible, only that it enhances the other factors that make war highly improbable. So where does all this leave us? I don't think it makes the strategic adjustments any easier, but it does imply that the parameters within which the US and China must seek a new accommodation are narrower than what we might have been led to expect by the media or the more sensationalist sort of academic analysis. I earlier argued it would be futile for the US to try and contain China. It would be equally futile for Beijing to try to exclude the US from East Asia. Both the US and China will remain essential parts of the East Asian strategic equation. And China has proposed a so-called new type of major power relations to the US. It's not entirely clear, at least it's not entirely clear to me, what China means by this. But by any definition, it implies some sort of role for the US in East Asia, even though the specifics of that role are yet to be determined. And the delineation of their respective roles is in fact what the groping after a new US-China modus vivendi is all about. Now, that's not the only strategic concept that China has put on the table. At the fourth summit of the Conference of, on Interaction and Confidence Building Measures in Asia, or SICA, held in Shanghai in May 2014, President Xi Jinping resurrected the notion that, and I quote, it is for the peoples of Asia to run the affairs of Asia, solve the problems of Asia, and uphold the security of Asia, end quote. Now, this idea has a venerable, if unhappy, history. The ghost of the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere haunts the idea. And it does bear a genetic resemblance to China's ritualistic argument that outside powers should not interfere in the South China Sea disputes. But I'm not inclined to read too much into it. Who or what is Asian? Is it a geographic, cultural, or political identity? Russia is a member of SICA, so is Israel. Are they Asian? Not so clear. The US is an observer in SICA, so are Belarus and Ukraine. And what in a globalized role is an outside powder, power or even a region? SICA is not obviously an Asian forum, nor are any of the other regional organizations and forums in which China participates, including the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and a Chinese initiative, which has Russia as a member and Belarus as an observer, obviously or solely Asian organizations. I think any inconsistency between the idea that President Xi floated at SICA and the proposed new type of major power relationships is best, perhaps an indication that China is still uncertain about what geopolitical concept would be in its best interest in a post-Cold War world, and hence 
reluctant to foreclose any option. In any case, it now seems to have been displaced by Presidency's vision of One Belt, One Road. This is primarily an economic vision but has geopolitical implications insofar as it can be understood as an ambition for a Sinocentric Eurasian, Eurasian and not just Asian, order. Japan is undoubtedly Asian. The impossibility of displacing Japan from East Asia is the strongest argument against any Chinese design to entirely exclude the US from the region. Sino-Japanese relations are complicated and will remain so even as tensions wax and wane. Without the US, or even if the US-Japan alliance is significantly weakened, Japan may well decide to go nuclear, and it has the ability to do so very quickly. If Japan goes nuclear, South Korea has the capability to follow suit. And it was the US that quashed such thoughts in Seoul during the 1970s. But they have never entirely disappeared and have recently resurfaced. There was an article in the International New York Times yesterday or the day before about this. You should read it if you haven't. Now, China can do without these serious potential complications towards an already complicated East Asian strategic equation. Once China acquires a credible second strike capability, an East Asian version of the question attributed to Charles de Gaulle must arise. Will San Francisco be sacrificed to save Tokyo? It may well already be whispered in Kante, that's the Japanese Prime Minister's office. It is not in China's interest to encourage such questions to surface prematurely, let alone be answered because the most probable answers will not be the answers Beijing wants to hear. I am sure, in fact, I am 100% sure that China would like to reclaim something of its central historical role in East Asia from the US. But how much to reclaim and how to do so without provoking a response from Japan and South Korea is a matter of very, very fine judgment and the cost of mistakes would be extremely high. I think the Chinese leadership knows this. Now, I've chose, I chose the word groping to describe the process of the US and China trying to reach a new modus vivendi with some care and some deliberation. The outcome of the strategic adjustments underway by is not going to be determined by a deliberate process of negotiation by American and Chinese leaders sitting around a table as Stalin, Roosevelt and Churchill did at Yalta as the Second World War drew to a close. That can only happen if there is some climatic denouement to the process and that is precisely what both sides are trying to avoid. I think the outcome will instead be determined by the accumulation of a slew of big and small diplomatic, political, military and economic decisions taken at all levels over a long period, probably decades. Many of these decisions will be ad hoc responses to situations or issues as they crop up and each decision may bear little or no obvious relationship to the overall strategic outcomes that American and Chinese leaders seek assuming that they know precisely what they want from each other, which is not to be taken for granted. It is not even to be taken for granted that there will ever be a definitive outcome. I stated at the beginning that US-China relations are infused with strategic distrust. Such uncertainties are one cause of distrust. Interdependence may also enhance strategic distrust by exposing mutual vulnerabilities. 
All the more so because China's rise has been psychologically disquieting to many in the West because in China, capitalism flourishes without democracy. This is regarded as somehow unnatural and illegitimate because it punctures the Western myth of the universality of its political values and of the inevitability of the development of political forms similar to its own. Unlike the former Soviet Union, China cannot be dismissed as an economic failure. China thus challenges in a very fundamental way the Western sense of self, which assumes its political and moral superiority as a key element. Of course, in these politically correct times, the Western sense of its superiority is rarely, if ever, admitted and would be vehemently denied. But the attitudes and modes of thought ingrained during the 200 years or so when first Europe and subsequently America shaped the basic structures, processes and concepts of international relations are not easily shaken off. They linger in invidious, perhaps even unconscious ways, camouflaged by talk of universality, the promotion of human rights and democracy and good governance. It is the basic mental framework within which the US views itself and the world, the foundation of which is the idea of America as moral exemplar and shining city on the hill. As I argued in my first lecture, the Western assumption of superiority may have been reinforced by misinterpretation of the meaning of the end of the Cold War. I will deal with the myth of universality in my fourth lecture. For now, let me just note that it is not just an abstract intellectual matter. The claim that certain political forms and values are universal was used to justify military interventions to change regimes in North America and, and the Middle East. All these interventions turned out very badly. They have resulted in greater instability in the region, which have had global consequences and added to the general uncertainties of our times. But I do not think there has been any fundamental change to the cast of mind that led to these disasters, even if some of the more extreme variants of the idea of universality, such as the silly notion that history had ended, are now smothered in an embarrassed silence. These attempts to change regimes in the Middle East and the bloody messes that resulted were closely watched by China and others in East Asia. Prudence has dictated that military intervention in the name of universality has been deployed only against the weak. This has tempered but not erased the doubts and anxieties that this approach has aroused in many countries, including China. Now, of course, no one is mad enough, at least I hope no one is mad enough, to subject China to kinetic intervention. But that is beside the point. Not all interventions are military and East Asia, Singapore included, has experienced more than our fair share of Western attempts to interfere in our domestic affairs. It seems very hard for the white man to lay down his burden and forswear the habit of whipping the heathen along the path of righteousness, even when this effort is utterly ineffectual. A while ago, I laughed. I laughed when I read about Lord Patton and British parliamentarians pontificating about democracy in Hong Kong during the Occupy Central demonstrations. That only made the British look more hypocritical than usual. 
But when 20 American senators wrote to President Obama on the same subject and when the President felt obliged to pronounce, however gingerly, on Hong Kong, that was no laughing matter. The US and China have had a number of senior level discussions on the new type of major power relations that China had suggested. It has three broad elements. Both sides readily agree that they should try to minimize disagreements. They also readily agree that they should try to foster habits of cooperation. But the US has been unable to give clear endorsement to the third element that is perhaps the most important element to the Chinese. And that element is mutual respect for core interests. Why? There are indeed aspects of the concept of core interests that need clarification. Is it, for instance, an invitation to create spheres of influence? But I think the US knows that the preservation of Communist Party rule is the most vital of Chinese core interests and is reluctant to endorse this explicitly. Of course, the US deals with the Chinese Communist Party pragmatically. It has no choice. But to explicitly invest Chinese Communist Party rule with legitimacy requires a redefinition of American values, including a de facto abandonment of the idea of universality that is apparently too painful to bear. Now, American leaders and officials often speak more to be heard domestically than internationally, there is often a large element of ritual in their invocations of democracy and human rights and universality. But this idea is so essential a part of the American psyche that I do not think their words are always just posturing. And I think Chinese leaders suspect that this is so too. The words of great powers reverberate more loudly and widely than may be intended and American politicians do not sufficiently understand how their pronouncements may grate on foreign years and have strategic consequences. Americans also sometimes forget that domestic politics is not an American monopoly. The days when even the most powerful of Chinese leaders can entirely disregard the opinions of their own people or insulate them from inconvenient foreign pronouncements are long gone. This is a particularly delicate phase of China's development. Beijing is now embarking on a second and more difficult stage of reform that in essence requires loosening the center's grip on crucial sectors of the economy while preserving the rule of the Chinese Communist Party. Can it be done? One should certainly hope so because all the alternatives are worse. But no one really knows, including, I think, China's leaders. China's external confidence masks a deep internal insecurity. Social protests are widespread in China, their impact potentially magnified through the internet and social media. China has about 650 million internet users. The Chinese Communist Party has so far been able to prevent local protests from escalating into national threats. Still, at a time when the Chinese Communist Party is grappling with existential questions, it is understandable that Chinese leaders should regard American attitudes towards universality and incautious words on Hong Kong or Tibet or Xinjiang or Taiwan or other sensitive issues with grave suspicion as ultimately intended to destabilize and delegitimize the Chinese Communist Party, a complication to already complex problems. But there seems to be a great reluctance by the US to confront this core issue. 
On their part, Chinese leaders and officials too do not seem to understand that their own attitudes can evoke distrust. If a new modus vivendi requires the US to acknowledge that different political systems can have their own legitimacy, it requires China to resist the temptations of a triumphalist nationalism. With communism discredited as an ideology, I don't think there are any ideological communists left in China, maybe a few in Harvard or you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts, but not in China. The, maybe Yale too, yeah, I forgot about that. The Chinese Communist Party is increasingly relying on nationalism to legitimate its rule. Chinese nationalism is sometimes disquieting, but the issue is not really nationalism per se. The US is also a highly nationalistic country, although in America this is usually benignly portrayed as patriotism. The essential source of American and Chinese nationalism is a sense of exceptionalism. The US and China both consider themselves exceptional countries, but the conclusions they draw are different. America is, in, is an inclusive culture that wants everybody to become like it and believes that the world would be a better place if this was so. China has an exclusive culture that rejects the notion that anyone could become like China as impossibly pretentious. To China, the best others can do is humbly acknowledge China's superiority and the sooner we do so, the better for everyone. Now, this is a very ancient and deeply ingrained feature of China's approach to international relations. Throughout its history, China took great pains to preserve the, at least the forms of its centrality, at least in its own mind, even when the facts were otherwise. It never lost its sense of superiority, even when powerless before the West and Japan. Now that China has re-emerged as a major power, this sense of superiority has become the underlying cause of the difficulties in China's relations with many countries. The attitude that China is entitled, entitled to have its superiority acknowledged and that failure to acknowledge China's superiority can only be due to recalcitrance or ill intention is why I think China will always suffer a deficit of soft power and evoke resentment. It is most pronounced in the case of Sino-Japanese relations. In June last year, at a World Peace Forum organized by Tsinghua University, Foreign Minister Wang Yi bluntly told the audience that the key to improvement in Sino-Japanese relations was for Japan to accept China's rise and change what he called its mentality, by which he clearly meant accept a subordinate status. Now, I don't think there is any country, Japan included, that would not deny China's rise as a geopolitical fact. You would have to be living on another planet to do so. But the Chinese assumption that acknowledgement of this fact should be accompanied by a normative acceptance of subordinate status within a natural hierarchy with China at its apex is an entirely different matter. No country will readily accept this, and it is perhaps more difficult for Japan than most countries. Seldom, if ever, in the long history of their interactions have Japan and China had to deal with each other on the basis of equality and both find it very difficult to do so. Many public opinion surveys in Japan have shown that in the space of a relatively few years, a relatively short time in any case, China has gone from being one of the most popular countries 
to being the most unpopular country, surpassing even Russia in this respect, which is a remarkable failure of Chinese diplomacy. This Chinese attitude is not confined to Japan. Singapore has a very good relationship with China, but Chinese leaders and officials, despite our repeatedly correcting them, persistently refer to Singapore as a Chinese country and say that we should therefore understand them better, meaning, of course, that we more than other countries should know our position in life and show deference even at the cost of our own interests. It's not even confined to the Chinese attitude towards small countries, and almost every country is smaller than China or to a country which just happens to have a majority Chinese ethnic population like ourselves. A few weeks ago, I asked a Chinese scholar, a visiting Chinese scholar, if he thought that the current state of China's relations with Russia, which are pretty stable, if not good, could be maintained. His immediate, almost Pavlovian response was that, of course, it could, provided Russia accepted its status. He did not mean Russia as China's equal. I thought this didn't augur well for Sino-Russia relations. And I think it is also a factor in Sino-India relations. Does this attitude contaminate US-China relations as well? Good question. I think perhaps not at present. Some vague notion of equality seems implicit in the concept of a new type of major power relations. China has cautioned the US not to embolden small countries, and Chinese diplomats have on occasion warned that if China's interests in the South China Sea are not recognized by ASEAN, it will settle matters with the US without ASEAN. And this also implies, if not equality, at least that China regards the US as being on a different level than other countries. If and when China overtakes the US as the world's largest economy, the psychological framework within which China now approaches the US might change. Now, I do not think it makes much substantive difference if an economy is ranked first or second, as both will still be hugely influential. But Chinese confidence will certainly get a boost if it becomes number one. The line between confidence and overconfidence is a thin one. And it's always dangerous to believe one's own propaganda because that is when miscalculations often occur. In East Asia, the assumption of Chinese centrality and superiority is particularly difficult to accept because it seems to encompass a strong element of revanchism. Now I said revanchism, not revisionism. They are not the same thing, but revanchism still causes anxiety. Almost exactly two years ago, President Xi Jinping met Lian Chan, the former Taiwanese vice president in China. In a speech that the People's Daily published on its front page under the title, and I quote, The Chinese Dream to Fulfill the Great Rejuvenation of the Chinese People Together, President Xi placed this great rejuvenation in the historical context of how Taiwan had been occupied by foreign powers when the Chinese nation was weak. And he used the phrase great rejuvenation again in his opening speech when he met Ma ying in Singapore last year. Now, don't misunderstand me, ladies and gentlemen. Reconciliation between China and Taiwan is, of course, to be welcomed. 
Every country in East Asia recognized the People's Republic of China as one China. But by casting the Chinese dream of reconciliation with Taiwan as an instance of the rectification of historical injustices inflicted upon a weak China, it suggested and left open broader questions. There is no doubt that China suffered many injustices in the 19th century and in the first half of the 20th century. Does a rising China intend to rectify all these historical injustices? If not, how will it choose which injustices to rectify? By what means does China intend to rectify historical injustices? No clear answers. The anxieties are accentuated because China seems to be increasingly relying on history to justify its claims of sovereignty in the South China Sea and elsewhere. And China has such a long history that it can be used to justify almost anything. And China also has a tradition of manipulating history as a tool of statecraft. Japan again provides the most vivid recent example of this aspect of Chinese nationalism, although the US and the West in general have not been spared. The Chinese Communist Party has described itself, to quote former President Jiang Zemin, as, and I quote, the finest and most thoroughgoing patriot, close quote, which had redeemed China after a hundred years of humiliation. The Chinese public has been subject to a steady drumbeat of various reminders of Chinese atrocities in China, of Japanese atrocities in China, to fan and keep alive bitter memories of the Second World War and the Chinese Communist Party's role in defeating Japan, particularly during last year's celebration of the 70th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. But it was not always so. Consider, for example, this statement which I'm going to read to you beginning of the quote. As you have formally apologized for the debts you have incurred in the past, it is not reasonable to ask you for payments of those debts. You cannot be asked to apologize every day, can you? It is not good for a nation to feel constantly guilty. End of quote. Now where do you think who that do you think that is from? That is not some right-wing Japanese politician trying to justify Japan's wartime record. It is a statement by Chairman Mao himself to a delegation of the Japanese Diet only a decade after the end of World War II. And when Mao, Mao Zedong met the former Japanese Prime Minister, Kakue Tanaka, in 1972, he brushed aside Tanaka's attempts to apologize saying that he was grateful to Japan because without the war, the Chinese Communist Party could not have been able to seize power. <laughs> Under Mao, the Chinese Communist Party's primary claim to legitimacy was class struggle. The Chinese Communist Party then emphasized its defeat of the Kuomintang as representative of the old order it overthrew. But once China began to embrace the market economy, and particularly after 2002, when businessmen working in private enterprises, in other words, capitalists, were allowed to join the Chinese Communist Party, class struggle lost credibility as a means of legitimizing Chinese Communist Party rule. And the emphasis shifted to the Communist Party's defeat of Japan. In other words, this is an instrumental use of history. Incidentally, 
It was the Kuomintang, not the Chinese Communist Party, that bore the brunt of the fighting against Japan. Now, such manipulations of history and the narrative of China as a victim are not costless to China and carry risks, at least I think so. A great power cannot forever portray itself as a victim without calling its intentions into question. Chinese diplomacy is characterized by a passive aggressiveness, which is the corollary of the portrayal of China as victim. The classic, indeed cliched, but alas still used, illustration of this passive aggressive tactic is the accusation that for one reason or another, someone has, and I quote, hurt the feelings of 1.3 billion people. Now, this aims to simultaneously make you feel bad. You must be a truly obnoxious human being to hurt the feelings of so many people. <laughs> but at the same time, it is a not-so-subtle warning about getting on the wrong side of a big country. Chinese diplomats also whine about ASEAN so-called bullying China or ganging up against China. Now, all 10 members of ASEAN combined are smaller than China. And this absurd complaint is, in effect, really a threat. It sets up a false dilemma, as if ASEAN's only choice is to agree with China or be against China. And the obvious insinuation is that this would be unwise. Such tactics raise doubts about the kind of partnership China really wants with ASEAN and are not in China's own interest, at least I think so. But Chinese diplomats do not seem to care perhaps because some ASEAN members do, in fact, fall for this tactic. More about this in the third lecture. But what China should not ignore is how the narrative of the Chinese Communist Party as the champion and redeemer of a victimized China could dangerously narrow China's options if an accident with the US or Japan should occur. Now, I said earlier that the chief risk is, not, is conflict by accident, not war by design. War is not in China's interest. And Beijing may, for all the reasons I have earlier set out, want to contain an incident if it occurs. But Beijing could be trapped by its own historical narrative and the highly nationalistic public opinion that the Chinese Communist Party both cultivates and fears may force China down paths it does not really want to travel. Ladies and gentlemen, let me conclude this evening with a final point. After news broke a few days ago of China's deployment of surface-to-air missiles on a dispute island in the Paracels, President Obama criticized the action as, and I quote, China resorting to the old style of might makes right, as opposed to working through international law and international norms to establish claims and to resolve disputes, end quote. Now, I entirely agree with this statement. But the use of the phrase old style also brought to mind Secretary of State Kerry's characterization almost two years ago of Russian actions in the Ukraine as, and I quote again, 19th century behavior in the 21st century. End quote. Both statements seem to me to miss a fundamental point. A century is not merely a unit of time but also a political construct. And it is pointless merely to complain about a competitor operating on the basis of a difficult political construct. Why assume that everybody necessarily operates within the same frame as oneself? That could lead to being ambushed by events. 
And indeed, Europe and the US were ambushed by events in Ukraine and perhaps in the South China Sea, but that's for another lecture. That could lead to people being ambushed by events. Now, one of the basic functions of diplomacy is to see the world through your competitor's eyes in order to understand the frame of reference within which he is operating. And thereafter, one of the basic purposes of statecraft is to use whatever means are available and appropriate to manoeuvre your competitor into your preferred frame of reference, or if this is not possible, to operate within the same frame in order to achieve your purposes. A stable modus vivendi can only be reached if all parties are operating within the same frame of reference. Are the US and China operating within the same frame of reference? I think they do substantially, but not entirely. And therefrom springs the complexity and risk of the relationship. Can the US and China be brought, brought within a common framework? That is not yet clear. Time will tell. But I do sometimes wonder whether the eventual answer, if there is an answer, may not prove more challenging than the question. Ladies and gentlemen, I have spoken for far, far too long and only scratched the surface of US-China relations. But I hope I have nevertheless succeeded in setting out in broad outline the parameters of that relationship and some of the basic issues involved. I do not think any of them will be resolved anytime soon, if ever. Still, I am not pessimistic about US-China relations because, as I have stressed, both countries are pragmatic and prudent. They want and need a stable relationship with each other. Neither is looking for trouble and the issues between them, while difficult and complicated, can be managed. What it does mean, however, is that while the US and China grope towards a new modus vivendi, the rest of us will have to navigate a prolonged period of more than usual uncertainty and stress. In my next lecture, I will examine what this means for Southeast Asia and ASEAN. Thank you for your patience in listening to me this evening. Thank you. Good evening, and uh, I'm Chan Hing Chi. I'm the moderator for this uh, Q&A session. But let me begin by saying to Bilahari that he really gave an excellent lecture. I want to use the word spectacular, but no, then don't. Bilahari don't, will don't, say, don't. why is she saying that? What does she want? Right. You know? <laughs> so I will say he, he gave an excellent lecture which was thoughtful and I think insightful. And I particularly like the way he dealt with the value impulses of the United States and China in their foreign policy and in dealing with each other. Because I think the nub of the problem for the US-China relationship is indeed that strategic mistrust which arises from the fact that the Chinese suspect the United States, Americans, want to change their system. And they cannot accept the way the Chinese are. And so, you know, there's this constant uh, pushing back and forth. But, you know, you can ask him questions on that. This has been a rich lecture, but there's so much more to cover because the US-China relationship is indeed vast and covers many areas. Um, let me just very briefly summarize the key points that Bilhari touched on. That it is difficult 
to characterize the US-China relationship. That this is not a clash of civilizations because the Chinese, in fact, do adopt many aspects. China adopts many aspects of modernization and the Western system. This is not a Cold War because there's so much interrelationship and activities. In fact, economically, it's almost symbiotic, the relationship. And the United States is going to be the leading power for the next decade and beyond. And to be quite honest, I think the Chinese admit this. And I have heard Chinese officials in Beijing say that for the next decade, they say decade, I say beyond, the United States will be the leading superpower. So they don't see themselves taking over there. War is unlikely, I agree. And that's the point he's made. And it will be competition, not rivalry, that will be the, that will mark the relationship. And uh, China, in fact... I didn't say not rivalry, I said competition and, and rivalry. rivalry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I didn't say not rivalry. Oh. Yeah, competition and rivalry, yeah. And uh, China is not a revisionist um, country. In fact, I think it's done very well in this particular system. Now, I would like to ask Bilahari as an opening question. I think I have about two, three questions, then I'll give you the floor. But the first question I would ask Bilahari is, you have not really touched very much on the strategic ambitions of China. You have discussed the footprint that China has tried to lay out through the different groupings it sets out, SEO, you know, SICA, One Belt, One Road. That's a footprint that they are marking out. And they talk of a model for the major power relations, a new model of major power relations. And there are different footprints, different models for different relationships. Yeah, I can see they're trying to do that and they're not sure what will actually work and what will be the final one. But how would you characterize China's strategic ambition for the Asia-Pacific? Oh, I thought I did. No, do you see okay. China pushing out the United States eventually, or wanting the United States to be out of the Asia-Pacific eventually? You had one line on oh. this about Japan. No, about America. Yeah, no, it's not. I thought I, I explained it. You know, obviously I was not clear. You could explain it again. Okay, I can explain it again. I have no doubt that the Chinese would like to reclaim something of their historical central role in at least East Asia uh, from the United States. But how to do it? And it's because they don't have the capability to push the, the US out entirely. And I'm not sure they believe it's in their interest to push the US out entirely. Because as I tried to explain, if they do that, one possible consequence would be Japan and possibly South Korea going nuclear. And I don't think they want that. That is a terrible complication to their life that I think they will try to avoid at all costs. Um, but the ambition is there. Whether it can be achieved, I don't think the Chinese themselves know. Uh, that is perhaps why one interpretation of a new type of great power relations 
is an invitation which the US has so far declined to form spheres of predominant influence, not mutual, not exclusive influence. I mean, the US is never going to disappear from East Asia, and I think the Chinese are not going to say, I'm never going to go to the uh, Western, Pacific, uh, East Pacific, Western part of the Pacific Ocean. Um, that's one interpretation. But I think in the end, all these concepts that they have thrown out shows that they don't really know. And I think the fundamental problem of finding a new accommodation, a new modus vivendi, is that really both the US and the Chinese do not yet really know what they want from the other. Now, the U.S. knows it needs some kind of new accommodation, new bonus vivendi. What is the shape of it? How much must it give up? Uh, what price must it pay? Doesn't know. The Chinese want what I told you they want, but how much, how to get it, how, how to do it without provoking other kinds of consequences, they don't know. And that is why they are groping towards this thing. It's not as if they got a plan and the U.S. has a plan, and you sit down over a table, and let's see how we can reconcile our plans. It's not going to work that way. It's going to work by this groping process. Small decisions accumulate, maybe unconsciously. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and that makes it more difficult for the rest of us. I agree. Yeah. Now, uh, you concluded your lecture by saying that, uh, in fact, you know, parties, the countries may be operating uh, with different frames of references. But, and you talked of cooperation between the United States and China in several areas. Do you think North Korea is one area where they are able to cooperate with more or less a common or similar frame of reference? Now, I said that I think they are substantially but not entirely within the same frame, and that's the difficulty. Mm -hmm. And North Korea, I'm glad you brought it up because that really shows the extent of misunderstanding of the US of China. Okay. Now, the Chinese, and the, there is no love lost between the North Koreans and the Chinese. I have been in North Korea, and you hear them talk about the Chinese, who, you're, your hair will stand on it. Uh, similarly, I've heard Chinese officials talk of North Korean and it's not with great fondness and affection either. I know that the Chinese do not like the North Korean nuclear program. But, and so to that extent, they have a common concern with the US. But what the US doesn't understand, and there's this persistent delusion in the US across many administrations that they can somehow work with China or North Korea. What the US does not seem to understand and feels almost impossible to understand is that common concerns are not the same thing as common interests. And what is China's interest in North Korea? There are five communist-type systems left in the world. Four are in Asia. North Korea is one of them. No matter how much the Chinese may dislike the North Korean nuclear program, to expect the Chinese to take robust actions, sanctions of things against North Korea is a pipe dream. It is a complete delusion. Because as the largest of these four Asian communist systems, Cuba is far away, it doesn't really matter. Huh? 
if China is seen to be complicit in undermining the rule of one communist party, that has immediate domestic implications for the Chinese Communist Party's own rule. To me, this is as it's an obvious point. So the Chinese hate the North Koreans. They are very upset with their nuclear program, but the things that they want to do must always be fall short of allowing or uh, uh, destabling the regime to the extent that another communist party falls. Why the Americans cannot understand this uh, uh, defeats me. It's one of the delusions of US-China relations. It shows that they are substantially within the same frame but not entirely within the frame frame. The North Koreans have one weapon uh, that the Chinese have no answer to. That weapon is to threaten to die. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. The I ideology, is it? But it's not ideology. It, North Korea is not a communist country in any ideological sense. <laughs> you look at the... Uh, it's a kind of theocratic country, but the structure of the system... You know, it's a theocratic country based on the religion of Kim. It's not even a communist country. You look at the North Korean state crest. All communist countries have got the hammer and the sickle. The North Koreans, just to be different, have got the writing brush right in the middle. <laughs> right? So, but in form, in political form, it is a communist system. And China cannot go and undermine another Absolutely. communist system. Exactly. But uh, do you think the uh, concern with refugees coming across to That's China one concern, but this is a much more fundamental concern. Refugees you can deal with uh, conceivably, you know. At most, you shoot them all or you push them back. And the Chinese, uh, 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 Chinese are quite capable of doing that. Huh? But to undermine another communist regime, it will give evil thoughts to your own people. <laughs> so what will the US, what is the United States and China working on when they work on North Korea? I think the Chinese are playing the US for all it's worth. <laughs> There's nothing much. Okay, you go to the Security Council, you put a few more sanctions. Mm -hmm. So what? North Korea is so sanctioned that a few, the, the effect is marginal. Anyway, because of the reason I, I said, the Chinese will always be very selective implementing any kind of sanction. Mm -hmm. That's a fact of life. There's nothing much you can do. But I don't think North Korea is such a big problem, you know. North Korea just wants a nuclear weapon to, so that its regime can survive. Now, if you're willing to swallow Iran, whose ambitions, know, God, God knows what the limit is, as at least a threshold nuclear weapon state, why can't you swallow North Korea? What the North Koreans want is American love and affection. Now, they have a very peculiar way of going about <laughs> seeking love and affection, but that's what they want. They want... They want a peace treaty with the US, that's all. Now give it to them. I know it can't, politically it's impossible uh, for any administration to do it. But what they want is intrinsically not a very big thing, you know. No, I agree that the North Koreans really just want to have two-party talks. The United States and Yeah, I heard North them Korea. say, I mean, yeah. they're not you interested know, the in the party, they're not interested They don't in trust the, the US, the, yeah. the Russia, they play along with them. Japan, they say, why deal with the dog when I can deal with the master? Yeah. Okay, let's leave North Korea. I have one more. <laughs> There's nothing much we can do about it. <laughs> now, I have one question, one last it's question. The third question, and actually. Third question, <laughs> and I leave the others to have a sh shot at you. Uh, this one is about China and Japan. Hmm. 
I think you gave uh, Japan an easy ride, actually. Uh, you talk of that of China having to get over it, where the Chinese atrocity, you know, Japan. I didn't use that first. I didn't no, use that I phrase. use the phrase. Okay, I'm using it. the phrase. She's my professor, so she's allowed to <laughs> put words in my mouth. That you are actually saying China should get over it, forget you know the war and the atrocities, and stop harping on it. But don't you think Japan should also get over it and stop going to the shrine all okay. the time, provoking every other country in the okay. region? I think this is a good question, but I think you have to understand it's a much more complex question than you think. The point I made about Sino-Japanese relations is that China manipulates history for political purposes. At one time, Mao Zedong said this is not important. Many Japanese prime ministers have gone to the shrine. In fact, even the Showa Emperor, Emperor Hirohito, has gone to the shrine. No problem. Now, that was before the so-called souls of Class A war criminals were interred in the shrine. And that, in fact, is also a complicated problem. Now, I asked Prof, Prof Chan before we went, does she know what a Class A war criminal is? She doesn't. Do you, any I of you know what? I thought I did. Yeah, I you thought, thought you I did. did. I, know, I know all of you think you do, but I don't think you do. A Class A war crime was defined something like this. To wage aggressive war against uh, crimes against the peace. Now that is a very problematic statement. War is a legitimate instrument of state policy. And what is an aggressive war? If you lose, then your war is aggressive. If you win, your war is justified, you know? <laughs> and the specific charge against those Clash A war criminals is that they wage aggressive war over quite a long period. I think it was 15 or 18 years or maybe it's even more. Huh? Now, not one of them was in power throughout that entire period of time for which they were charged. The only person that was in power during that time was Emperor Hirohito, in whose name the war was waged. And you, once the decision to spare Hirohito was made, you know, executing the others became a little problematic because none of them was in power throughout the whole period. And what is aggressive war anyway? against the peace. Now, I'm not saying that those people did not richly deserve to be hanged, but not for the charge for which they were actually hanged. <laughs> class B war criminals are, you know, and Class C common war criminals are the common or garden variety type criminals, you know, mistreating POWs, killing civilians. And some of those people may have been complicit in that. But to hang them for, to, for crimes against the peace over a period of time when none of them was in power, that's a bit problematic. Uh, and China manipulates history. At one time, it says it's not a problem. Now, where the Japanese can be faulted, it's not going to Yasuhiro, uh, yes, Yasukuni Shrine, per se. I think where they can be faulted is for not sufficiently educating their people in their own history. Uh, for, for various Japanese governments, the Abe government included, not getting some of his more extreme right-wing supporters from say, stopping his more extreme right-wing supporters from saying stupid things like the chairman of NHK, mm -hmm. and among others, and for some, and for not for, and for not putting to end of debate and allowing some of the right-wing Japanese academics to 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 sort of quibble over 
exactly how many people were killed at Nanjing, you know, what does it matter, you know, <laughs> right? The apology that Abe gave last year was a quite a comprehensive one. And I think that's about as good as it gets. And it's not a fact. And you can't go and tell the Japanese you must be sincere. How do you judge a person's sincerity? It's not a question of sincerity. It is the interest of China and South Korea whether or not they want to consider the apology sincere. Sincerity is by other action. I think his wife showed up whilst he apologized. Who? Abe. Yeah, so what? Because he's a politician. Well, that's sincere. Then sincerity comes. No, I, but I say no. You, no, there's nothing to do. Which means you don't mean the apology, but yeah, because I, as I said, if you if you are, if you are, if the objection is to the internment of Class A war criminals, and it must be because China never protested before they were there, when even the emperor went to Yasukuni shrine, it is not sincere on the Chinese part to make such a bloody fuss either. So you're talking about sincerity, both sides are insincere. They're all politicians. What has sincerity got to do with politics or diplomacy? No, I mean, I agree, but I thought you gave, you didn't sort of, you, you gave Japan a pass. That was no, I didn't point. give Japan a pass. I know you're anti-Japanese, like, that's a different matter. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I, just, I like to poke her also. Well, I won't say what I want to say. Yeah, okay. <laughs> let the others ask questions, sir. Yeah, I'll let the others ask questions. Yeah. Uh, yes, the first question down here. I can't see it. Please you. identify you? your name and your organization oh, just so we know where the question okay, comes from. My name from. is Tan uh, Sui Che. I'm from NTUC uh, Enterprise. Can't hear you. you know? Can't hear you. Hello. Ah, okay. okay. Uh, my name is Tan Sui Che. I'm from NTUC Enterprise. Uh, I thought your lecture was very engaging, and I wanted to explore uh, a few words with you. Uh, the words you use were exceptionalism, and I wanted that to be linked to another word you use, pluralism. Uh, what? what? Pluralism. Pluralism. Which you yeah. say that you're going to do in a fourth lecture, I think. Yeah. And then eventually, the issue of arrogance, right? Because. I thought the problem between China and Japan is really a question of mindsets. Question of mindsets. Because the way you describe uh, American exceptionalism was about inclusiveness and China was exclusiveness. Uh, but to that, I could also add words like individualism. What? Individualism of the American culture, uh, collectiveness of, uh, of the Chinese culture. Uh, Chinese culture is more high context, uh, American culture more low context and more achievement orientated. So they have different mindsets to the world and they have a different uh, historical narrative. And they would have been alright uh, have they not gone, if, if their narratives and their uh, characteristics of exceptionalism are common, except that America is seen as a beacon on the hill, universal human rights, Whereas China is mandated from heaven, an attitude of centrality. Yeah. yeah what's your question? You yeah, seem to be agreeing with me. I, I agree with you. My question, my question to you would be: Has China or Xi Jinping acted too soon? Yeah. Because uh, in the days of Deng Xiaoping, uh, they would have been all right because they were quietly building up their strength, uh, and then to wait for glory another day. But it yeah. seemed to me uh, China has not fully developed their strength. Uh, and they have begun to assert themselves. I'm not arguing that they should go into direct confrontation or competition, but I'm arguing on the basis that uh, this is probably an issue of arrogance, right? Because America wants to be dominant.
permanent. So your so question is, is China. What is your question? I don't understand your question. No, no, no. Has China acted too soon? Has China acted too soon? Has China acted too soon? Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, stop there. Stop right there. Uh. Stop right there. I'll answer that. <laughs> because the more you, yeah. you ask, no, I get no, more. But let, let them ask the question. No, no, I can ask a question, but it has to be a question, you know. <laughs> not a bloody lecture again, you know. Okay, has China acted too soon? I'm not sure. I think a lot of the statements that come out of China, just like a lot of statements that come out of America, are meant primarily for domestic consumption. Alright? And there are good reasons why they do that. If you look at Chinese behaviour in the world, with the sole exception of the South China Sea, I think, almost the sole exception of South China Sea, and the East China Sea, I mean the maritime disputes, huh? they have actually been quite prudent. As I said, they have been more or less a free rider on the existing system. They are not revisionists. In the South China Sea and the East China Sea, I think they are revanches, which is not quite the same as revisionists. Right. Revanchism is reclaiming what you think is yours. Revisionism is creating a new, a new right. order. So, it's very hard to answer your question because if you look at what he says, uh, the huge visions he's put out, one belt, one road, and so on, I think the answer must be, uh, yes, it's a bit premature. But a vision is not a plan. <laughs> uh, and what he has done in implementing that vision is actually still quite limited, and I am not even sure that the belt is going to succeed. I think the road, the, the southern part, will, will probably substantially, if not totally, succeed, but over a long period of time. The bell is very problematic for a whole lot of reasons. So, should he have said all these things? If you're just talking about saying, maybe it was premature, but he had good reasons, probably domestic reasons, to do so. So, from that point of view, not premature, because the domestic politics is now, you know, you cannot wait. But you look at the behaviour, apart from the South China Sea, East China Sea, they have not done very much in the, in the rest of the world. They sent a few ships to the Gulf of Aden, which anti-piracy, or maybe practice for long-range deployments. They've done, they talked, Wang Yi and Xi Jinping have talked a good talk in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. But if they really do what, at least Wang Yi said, they want to do, play a political role and a strategic role, they will regret it immensely. And I don't think they really mean to play a role. They mean to get away with as little as they can do in those regions, and I can't blame them because anybody who has got embroiled in those regions uh, regrets it. So, what the impossibility of giving a very clear and definitive answer to your question shows that what I began to when I answered Heng Chi's question that both sides really don't know what they want in life uh, from each other. Uh, but Bilhari, would you agree that actually great powers tend to want to do the vision thing? I think every American president comes forth and tries to set up a vision yeah. also. And I think China is just playing that it's game not, now. There's nothing very yeah. unusual about so it. Uh. And this uh. vision, and Xi Jinping is much more articulate and much more ready to articulate these visions. No, he's yes, more, he has yeah. been bolder, he has been more assertive right. in certain ways than his predecessor. SEO was not during Xi Jinping's time, uh. it was Hu Jintao's uh. time. Yeah. So I, I think it depends on where you want to slice it. From a domestic point of view, probably it is not premature because he needed it. 
He needed some kind of validation, right? From an international point of view, if you talk, is it premature to have a vision? As Henchi said, all major powers have visions, you know. Uh, uh, but it's not really done all that much to implement it. A bit in the belt, quite a lot in the road, certainly in the south and east China sees quite a lot, but globally, not that much. Don't listen to what great powers say, see what they do. And to come back to your earlier point, both Chinese and Americans, the Americans are inclusive, by, and, and they think everybody should be like them, so sometimes they invade countries. <laughs> so they, you know, major powers are much more alike than they would care to admit. Questions? Yes? Ah, they're standing there. Yes, please. Um, hello, I'm Roxanne from the United World College of Southeast Asia East Campus. I wanted to ask a question about, earlier you were explaining how the US and Chinese flavors of exceptionalism were fundamentally different. Could you please shed some light as to why that may be and how those different forms developed? In a word, history. They have different histories, they have different experiences of history, they have different conceptions of themselves as history. America was basically founded by people who ran away from Europe and wanted to have a, a new country based on different principles. China has always been there and it believes it's reclaiming its rightful place in the world. But they both believe they're exceptional. Both are wrong, by the way. They're not as exceptional as they think, at least in my view. But what, this is their self-image anyway. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the, can I have, yes. There's a whole queue. The young think. woman behind. Yeah. Oh, the, sorry. I yeah. should come here later, please. Um, I wanted to know how you. Sorry, well, uh, first name, of all, where you come from? Um, I'm Audrey Gabay. I'm also from United World College. I wanted to know what you think um, the presidential elections results, whether it's Republican or Democratic, in the U.S. Yeah. How that will affect um, U.S.-China relationships, and how the dynamic would be different if we have a. Republican administration or a Democratic administration? Good question. Good question. Yeah. But I told you during my lecture, I'm not clairvoyant, you know. <laughs> but I'll venture a guess anyway. I think, rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly, there is a perception that the second administration of President Obama has been less engaged and less weak. So whether it is a Republican or a Democrat as the next, the next sits in the White House, I think American policy is bound to get more assertive. <laughs> now, it does not, that does not mean it's going to be reckless, it does not mean it's going to be imprudent, but it's going to be more assertive. How exactly more assertive? God only knows, and if he knows, he didn't tell me, so I can't answer <laughs> any further. Thank you. Uh -huh. There's somebody over. over this side, no? Oh, no, it's over here. Yeah, this guy. There. I'm uh, Ashwin. I'm from the Institute of Southeast. From louder, the, please. Louder, please. Okay, sorry. I'm Ashwin. I'm from the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies. I was just curious about a point you made during the lecture and also during the question and answer session about the possibility of South Korea or Japan going nuclear in the event that America disengages from East Asia. What I'm curious about is, like, wouldn't they face face the risk of a backlash uh, from the international community in the same way that North Korea is currently facing and Iran used to face, especially from China and Russia and the UN. 
in such a way that it would come at a great cost to themselves and in a very perverse way uh, bring, bring international isolation upon them and change the balance of power in, in China's favor. Uh, who is the international community and where do I call it? In the UN? The UN, UN Security please Council? La, please, la, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, look, yeah. in the kind of situation where they will do that, it will mean that Japan has completely lost faith in the US alliance. Or because the China has been overly successful in displacing the US from East Asia. In such a situation, I think Japan and, and South Korea will see this as an existential question. Uh, 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 and, we, and, and therefore, the good regard of the international community will be a third, fourth, fifth order consideration. Don't be naive uh, about, you know, about the UN. You know, the UN, in that situation, by the way, I can even envisage if the US is unable to maintain the nuclear shield, I can envisage the US, the US uh, playing the role that China plays vis-a-vis -vis North Korea in the Security Council on behalf of Japan. Maybe not vetoing uh, any resolution that may be put forward by China, but at least mm -hmm. uh, abstaining. But if China puts forward the resolution, there will be a good chance that the US will veto it. There is no such thing as the international community. And it's this never is a construct we use yes. to sound good. Yes. <laughs> it's something we use when we want to make somebody else feel bad. My sense is that you will have some rhetoric about, you know, oh, against, bad, bad. Look. against Japan and South Korea for acquiring nuclear uh, power, but not really. The, the, they have because the thing, they have the capability. They, they have, the, Japan at least, has the means to get the, the fissionable material. Yeah. They have the fissionable material. Not a very efficient thought, but they have it already. They have the technology to create the device. They have the means of delivery. Nobody is making a big fuss about it. Okay. The, at the back, and then I'll come to you. Don't worry. Yeah. Basil Chong, master's student, Pepperdine University. Uh, what university, sorry? <coughs> Pepperdine University. Pepperdine. Pepperdine University. What brings you here? I'm back home. <laughs> I'm back home. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so my question is regards to the, the different ways, the different roles military play, play in China and the U.S. The U.S. is a very divided, you know, the military is off by itself, subordinate to the government. In China, the Central Military Commission is the key organ in, in the whole state and the way the state is run. If not the key, then one of the key organs. Uh, one of the things that we talked about in this lecture is how any framework is going to be arrived at, not by you know, two countries sitting down and discussing, but getting to it piece by piece. Uh, you said small decisions uh, accruing, you know, perhaps unconsciously. So when you have a military influence in China, doesn't that up the risk of small decisions being made in a way that escalates rather than de-escalates? I don't think so. The central mili the military is subordinate to civilian rule in both. Yeah. In, the, in China to the party, in the US to the state. And the commander-in-chief is the president. Yeah. So I don't see that that is the... Uh, things may well get out of hand, but not for the reason you... Yeah. I doubt for the reason you, 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 you put forward. 
I mean, I've been reading all these things that the military, the PLA is out of control in China. I think it's all rubbish. Huh? The PLA is a, is a party organ. I mean, it's an instrument of the party. And Xi Jinping, much more probably than his predecessor, has got it in his hands. At least for now, huh? it may slip from his grasp. Huh? But I don't think that would be the factor if things get out of hand. So what would be? Many, I don't know. Again, I'm not clairvoyant. Uh, good evening, Ambassador. My name is Arjun, and I'm a full-time national serviceman. Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> so how come you're out of camp, man? I have an off-pass. Uh -huh. oh, to hear him, to come Sorry? to listen to him. <laughs> really? Yeah. My God, what unit are you from? <laughs> I don't think I can say. Okay, okay, now I ask your question. Okay, my question is related to what you said about China and the US being unlikely to engage in a war by design. Yeah. Now, China and the US have friction over specific issues such as intellectual property rights and cybersecurity. Yeah. China has in the past worked through proxies. An example, correct me if I'm wrong, is where China supports Maoism in the northeastern states of India in response to India's support for an independent Tibet. Do you foresee, I know you're not clairvoyant, but do you foresee uh, China and the US keeping in mind that elections are coming up, engaging in similar ways to achieve ad hoc measures of leverage over each other? Oh, of course. This is how great powers behave. They, they are not going to confront each other directly if they can help it. They will go and poke each other either directly, indirectly through other people, through proxies on through the sites. Yeah. Right? So they will, of course they will do this. This is normal. Okay, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't mean war is going to break out day after tomorrow, don't worry. So you can serve your national service in peace. <laughs> if, if you have to be mobilized, it will not be because of either the US or China. Um, the question at the back, please. Yeah. The yeah, I am Rafael Veron with United World College. Okay, uh, louder, please. We are both getting on in age, so we can't hear so well. Sorry. I'm Rafael Veron with United World College. I'd like to ask you your opinion on the possibility of a more independent Japan emerging in terms of geopolitical stance, because as much as the US and Japan are aligned when it comes to questions about China, Japan is increasingly fed up with American presence in Okinawa and is trying to emerge as its own more separate economy and, and get rid of US influence over its economy. I don't think you're right in the first place. The Okinawans are fed up about the American presence in Okinawa. That's a quite a different thing from saying Japan is fed up about the American presence in Japan. Well, but also there's a traditional Japanese sense of exceptionalism as much as there is for the US and China. Yeah, but uh, I think the Japanese do value the US alliance. They do not want to, to get back to an early career. They do not want to have to lose faith in the Americans if they can possibly help it. And actually, I see no sign of it. They may want to have, the Americans, the US and Japan have issues, but they are mainly economic issues. Mm -hmm. They may have different issues of priority in, dif in different things. But these are, um, are issues within an alliance, at least for now. So I think while there are a whole host of things in the world to worry about, the weakening of the US-Japan alliance is not among those things to worry about, at least for now. Thank you. The next poll. 
Um, thank you for uh, your name, uh, Paul, Paul Evans. Evans. I'm a visiting professor at Singapore Management University. Um, brilliant, insightful analysis. But you left us hanging on prescription. Uh, are we to sit and observe the great drama of U.S.-China relations with the nuance and the um, sophistication of your understanding? Or what should other countries, Singapore, Australia, South Korea, Canada, what, what should we be doing in this great drama that's unfolding other than simply observing? Uh, Paul, Paul is an old friend, huh? so I know he's trying to poke me, right? <laughs> this is true. <laughs> now, I will have some prescriptions, but only for Singapore in my last lecture as a consequence of the total analysis. I do not make prescriptions for China, for US, for Australia, for Canada, or for any other country except Singapore. Because my entire career has been as a member of the Singapore Foreign Service, our job is to protect and promote Singapore's interests, not the international community's interests, <laughs> or any other country's interests. So good luck. Good try, Paul. No cigar. And this you, is shameless. <laughs> this is shameless. I am shameless. We have you to know come that. back for episode five. No, I will. Yeah, come back for episode five, and I know you may not be here. I'll send you a copy. <laughs> is there a last question? Because we've exceeded. We've gone over time. Actually. We've gone over time, but. Does anyone want the last question? There's somebody up Please. there. Yeah. There. Is that Peter's here? I have no idea who that is. I can't see. Thank you very much for your speech. No, uh, much younger than Peter's here. <laughs> uh, I'm Tan Minwei from IPS. Uh, IPS, is it? IPS, yes. Yes. The US Senate recently voted to rename uh, the road that the Chinese oh, embassy is on. Uh, one Liu Xiaobao Plaza. Uh, my question is twofold. What, does the, what do you think the US Senate hopes to achieve by this? And to what extent will uh, internal factions in both US and China undermine the US-China relationship? Well, I don't know what the US Senate hoped to achieve. I thought it was a particularly stupid move. It will achieve nothing except make itself feel better for a little while. Anyway, this thing is probably going to be vetoed by... Uh, in fact, Obama already Obama said he will veto, said, yeah, he will, he will veto it. So it's not going to happen. It's just a, one of those futile gestures that does complicate um, US-China relations. But I think you have made... By raising this issue, you have made a very good point. I think the key factors that are going to determine the relationship are not international factors. They are domestic factors in both countries. countries. Now, how that is going to play out... I'm not sure, but it will be domestic factors that drive their policies either towards other places which bring them into conflict or towards each other which complicate things. I mean, this is like a stupid small little gesture that is completely meaningless, you know. Uh, but it irritates somebody without being able to achieve anything. Anyway, it's going to be veto. In fact, I asked a friend, a very right-wing American friend, through the email. All right, you have named it uh, after Lu, 
uh, after a Chinese dissident. But we are just next to the, our embassy is next to the uh, Chinese embassy. Are you going to name our little stretch of road after Lee Kuan Yew? <laughs> uh, no answer. <laughs> Thank you very much. I would like to um, just elaborate on the point that Bilahari made that really is the domestic politics that will drive you know, foreign policy and we have to take note of that. Uh, the one thing that we should remember is that the ground in the United States is changing. You know, it just as in the 1960s and 70s, the Vietnam War and the counterculture revolution in the United States drastically transformed American society. I think today something is happening in the United States. And this, the change that's taking place in the population, and this is brought about by, you know, your uh, the two, the long recession is brought about by the two wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, immigration, job globalization, jobs being uh, lost and jobs being displaced. I think, you know, population and the great inequality that has arisen in the United States. People are unhappy and there's a great disconnect taking place between the people and the government. And you see, you know, outsiders, anti-establishment figures like Bernie Sanders, uh, Trump and Ted Cruz, you know, uh, gaining the votes, which surprises everyone. And some things are happening. What this, and in fact, America today is much less interested in putting foot on, uh, boots on the ground, taking up wars of choice and being interventionist. What will this do to American foreign policy? These social trends would be something that would be very interesting. And I think we should bear that in mind. Just to add to that, uh, I do not think Xi Jinping wakes up every day and the first thing he thinks about is what to do about America. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. And I don't think Obama wakes up and thinks what to do about China either. <laughs> yes. Uh, these big countries are difficult enough to govern by themselves. And they are, as I said in, in passing, their pre essential preoccupations are internal. I think we should go now. I, <laughs> I need well, a drink. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, it is my task to bring this um, uh, discussion, this lecture and discussion to a close. I was asked to make some concluding remarks. I don't think you want to hear more remarks. So uh, I think I've said my piece. Uh, shall we show our appreciation? <laughs> yes, in the